I'm always curious walking into episodes like this because, well, I mean, I've watched TNG a lot in my life. I watched it when it came out, I watched it on the reruns, I, you know, I had the VHSs, then I had the collector's VHSs, then I had the DVDs, and now, now I have the Blu-rays. And so I've watched TNG many times in my life. But as I've mentioned before, it's actually been several years as of this point in time, or rather as of when I started you know, going back through Encounter Farpoint. It's been several years since I've actually watched TNG. And so a lot of my memories are exactly that. They're tinted and tainted by the effect of memory. And going back through with analysis mode, as I've discovered many times, has changed my opinion. So I, I walk into an, an episode and I'm like, I really remember liking this episode. I wonder if it's actually good, is, is basically what's going through my mind when I get to these things. So I get through this episode and it's like, <gasps> no, I actually did like this episode quite a lot. I'll talk a little bit more why in a second, but I do want to give special credit to Les Landau. I've mentioned him as a director several times, but he approached this episode with the problem of wanting to try and showcase certain items in a certain way. Now, this ended up not really being an issue thanks to the construction of the script. The script got a rewrite by Joe Minoski, and it shows, in a good way. As I've said before, I'm actually more a fan than not of Joe Minoski, even though I adamantly disagree with his approach to continuity. The man's a good writer, you know what I mean? So, as I've mentioned several times over my Voyager stuff... So, what we have here is a script where a lot of scenes are literally shot differently in order to try and showcase them in, in a quite literally different light. Uh, one of my favorite examples is right towards the end when they're doing the flashback of the first loop through, and they do this thing where everything's just kind of fluid, like there's a lot of camera shots which start here and then slowly pan back and then over here, and very few edits decent amount of camera motion, small amount of edits, which makes for a completely different feel to it. By contrast, the last f scene of the episode, which is the final uh, loop through, when they've, when they've concluded everything, everything, cameras or angles are completely static, and there's a lot of quick and rapid shots, uh, cuts, I should say, edits, in between scenes to showcase the difference between the two. It's a nice little visual indicator that I imagine most people never even notice, but that's the point. As ever, good video and audio design. Visual and audio design is the kind of stuff you're not actually supposed to notice. I also want to give special credit for the fact that this is a spec script, which I've talked about several times before, the concept of that. And I mention that because apparently the gentleman who wrote this, who was a... Uh, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> he was a guy from Phoenix, I remember that. He actually mentions him in here. And he mentions how he was a fan. He was just a big Star Trek fan who really wanted to do something with it. Uh, here we go. It was a mailman. It was a mailman in Phoenix. And, yeah, he'd said, apparently there's actually several uh, scripts he'd tossed in here. And he's a fan. And I mentioned that because as much gripe and negativity that fan fiction gets, understandably so, it's always interesting to me how many good scripts come from fans. Not just in Star Trek, but in general. How many times people who are really a fan of the work or the franchise or the setting or whatever have come in and said, well, why don't we do this story idea, dot, 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 dot. And we've gotten some truly excellent episodes or books or games out of that kind of a thing. Just something I wanted to comment on. So, at the beginning of the episode, they mentioned leisure activities, and more importantly, the fact that they're normal. Now, I know that's a weird thing to comment on, but I mention it because it once again gets across my idea that I've been trying to push this entire time as I'm going through this rumination series of the fact that the Galaxy-class cruiser, while being a heavy cruiser, is also a luxury liner, you know what I mean? It's the apartment complex in space, that's why I keep thinking of it as. But, I mean, 
as it just goes through showing all these people doing all their fun off activities time, I find it interesting that it's basically considered normal that Starfleet officers are supposed to be able to relax and enjoy their lives while working on a starship. Now that makes perfect sense, not just because of the fact that this ship was made in the, you know, the golden era age that I've talked several times about. Even Lore Reloaded has brought up that one. Uh, but also because of the fact that that's logical. <laughs> right? Let me put it to you this way. You put troops down in the trenches for long enough, no relief, no vacation, no leisure activity, people start to go a little feral. And I mean that almost literally. In fact, uh, the Siege of AR-558, we'll cover that over in Deep Space Nine, so that's a topic Star Trek will actually cover. And this is a very, very, very long-standing, understood aspect of human psychology with regards to real-life military affairs. So it makes sense that they would want people to have lives in addition to their jobs when it comes to working on a starship. It's one of the reasons why some people... Every now and again I've had an argument, eh, a discussion, with a fellow fan of Star Trek, and they've been like, it's so stupid, all the, the recreation activities they have on a starship, and my reaction is always, why? These people live on these ships 24-7. You know, that's, that's, that's their life. That's their existence 100% of the time. Of course they have leisurely activities. Of course they have a holodeck. It's probably the specific reason in canon why the holodeck was invented. So that they had the opportunity of doing more leisure activities while on the ship that they're living on for all of their life, you know? And as strange as this may sound, I'm actually in favor of that. As always, within moderation, but you get the idea. Anywho... So then, <laughs> the guy to, uh, uh, it's, it's her only cameo in the whole episode. It's right at the beginning of the woman who's from Cleveland. <laughs> Where are you from? I'm, I'm Gloria from Cleveland. I'm, I don't know why that just kept, I, I think it's her delivery. Whoopi Goldberg, uh, at least you know, back in the day. I haven't seen her do stuff in several years, but back in the day, she had a really great sense of comedic timing. But I bring it up as well because it called to mind, because I've seen this so many times. How many of you guys have a hobby? I imagine the answer is 100% of you. So, you know, that hobby, Star Trek, you know, that's a hobby, right? Uh, playing video games, uh, tabletop, board game, you know, poker. Uh, Texas Hold'em, anyone? You know, I, I like Texas Hold'em personally. Uh, there's all sorts of things that are hobbies. And how many times have you had a friend or a loved one or a family member or whatever who basically wanted to spend more time with you, and so they tried to give your hobby a shot? And it's not like they disliked it, but they just we're trying so hard to get into the swing of it and not understanding it at all, because that's exactly what's going on with Guinan in those scenes. And it's just a particular brand of adorable. You do this for fun. Yes, it's a mystery. And we've got to... And that's going to be fun. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Anyways. And then Data calls in. Another reason I like this episode is there's a lot of little touches. You'll notice we haven't even left the teaser yet as I'm still talking about it. One of those little touches is the fact that Data literally calls in. He routes the computer's communication system through the phone that's being played in the holodeck, which makes so many sense on so many levels, I'm astonished they haven't done more of that. Because, again, as Data points out, it's a very non-intrusive way of getting a hold of someone, but also it would be an interesting way to just kind of, well, basically tr be able to deal with something without interrupting the flow. I mean, I, I guess I already said that, but for example, let's say it was a non-big deal. Let's say Data was calling down saying, hey, Captain, there's such and such going on. I just wanted you to let you know. So rather than making Picard freeze the program, pause the game, basically, and go do that, he could just... Yep. Okay. All right, I'll report to him in three hours. Thanks, Data. And then go back into it. That's just a cool little feature. I just wanted to comment on that. 
Then Picard mentions something. Now, this is very interesting. I know I'm, I'm still talking about little details, but Picard mentions that there's an M-class protocol, or an M-class planet, excuse me, and both he and Data mention that there is a protocol involved that they have to investigate the existence of an M-class planet. Now, that does, again, make sense for at least two reasons I could come up with right off the top of my head. Reason number one is the fact that this is a planet which, you know, needs, may have lit life on it, sentient, sapient, or otherwise. And that would be, you know, something that would want to be abreast of. As I've said many, many times, a good intelligence network is the key to peace. And that, that means more than just your enemies. That just means, in general, being aware of what's going on, having good intel. Knowing what's going on on the board is a mandatory uh, statement when it comes to any organization. So, that makes sense for the exploration side of things. And, of course, the whole, you know, encountering new life forms and whatnot. But I also found myself thinking about the other side of that, the expansion side of the Forex. Because if you think about it, the Federation is very colonist-happy, right? I mean, this has been such a recurring thing. This is, hell, even over on Deep Space Nine, we hear about how many different colonies they have all over the place. Never mind the Maquis crap. So, we have... It would make sense if they see an M-class planet, their first thought would be, oh, we should... We should settle there. We should go check it out. Let's go. You know, that kind of a thing. Anywho, I, I, just food for thought. What do you guys think? Like, Because they never explain. Why is it you think they have this mandatory protocol for ex expanding or exploring M-class planets? And then they all get knocked out. Ah. I, <laughs> I sometimes don't envy actors because the things you have to do. Okay, I want you to slump over in the most uncomfortable position physically possible, and just lay there while we ch take the scene, okay? Go! <clears throat> Anywho. <clears throat> so, there's this nice line, and I know that this is only funny in hindsight, but they've just gone through an unstable, you know, uncertain wormhole. Oh, hang on, yawn. Yeah. Yawn attack. Unstable wormhole, which causes them to yawn. And Riker says, oh, thank goodness we didn't end up halfway across the galaxy. <laughs> Only now can we look back and find that statement funny. <clears throat> I do funny... Ha uh, it's this is probably one of those fascinating episodes to watch, rewatch amongst TNG. And it shows, in many ways, the strength of uh, preloaded storytelling versus backloaded... Uh, frontloaded storytelling, excuse me, versus backloaded storytelling. Now, I've talked all over the place about backloaded storytelling because that's what DS9 tends to do. But TNG very, very rarely has either. It just kind of does its own thing, building off of it with no intention to front or backload. It's just making a new episode. But this end of episode, in a nutshell, is a good example of front-loaded uh, storytelling. Again, that rewatch factor, the Babylon 5 effect. My favorite example of this, well, I'll actually talk about later, but my second favorite example is Data. He is, every time someone has a question or a comment, he's, he's there with an answer. Maybe we could do this, sir. One thing that might happen is this, sir. It's very unlikely that this... And if you sit... And I, what I love about this is not, nothing he's doing or saying is really out of character. Because it is data. He's just trying to direct things in a certain way. And he very nearly succeeded, too. In fact, honestly, if not for the fungus, there's a pretty good chance this would have never happened. This would have just... They would have just moved on. Or the spores or whatever, I should say. But he's just kind of, oh, maybe it's this. Oh, oh, maybe it's this. And as they find more and more evidence, his explanations just get wilder and wilder. And it starts to become more obvious what he's doing. He is misdirecting. Because Data well, isn't really a good liar. In fact, he's more or less incapable of a straight lie. You'll notice that the writing in his dialogue, this is where Joe Minoski really comes into it, is extremely particular. Uh, the way he says things throughout the entire episode is, is immaculately crafted to try and explain not just what he's saying, 
but what he's not. At several points in time, Data basically says, Captain, there's something going on and I want you to trust me. But he doesn't say that. The words coming out of his mouth are something completely separate. And he's trying to imply this at repeated times. One of my favorite little tiny tidbits in this episode is towards the end, you know, the, the jig is up. And he says, it's you, Captain. Which I gotta admit, that was a bit of a shock uh, back when I first saw this episode. But anyways, uh, that caught me. So Data, you know, it was you, Captain. Cut to black, cut black, and oh my god, the energy field. And shields up to maximum. And Data says, no, we should do this instead. And Picard, without hesitation, without a blink of anything, just, yes, do what Commander Data says. And I mentioned that. Because, well, that's the point, isn't it? See, Data does trust... <laughs> Picard does trust Data. We, the audience, trusts Data. And that's why the mystery works. I've heard several people say the mystery is weak in this episode because it's obvious Data's behind it. And I always just kind of grimace just a little bit because that's not the mystery. The mystery is Why? Why is Data doing this? We find out very, very early on that Data's up to something. So early on, in fact, in the second scene after the teaser, we have a scene where the camera work and vocal and, and, and the, the communication and of the... Ugh, use words. The music and visuals are both indicating that Data's up to something. Right at the beginning. That's not the mystery. The mystery is... Why? And what I love about this, and this is the kind of episode that would only work further into a series. You, you couldn't do this episode in season one. Probably not in season two either, because again, the whole point is that everyone, including the audience, trusts Data. And, this is important, Data never acts out of character. At no point in time does he do the typical Star Trek thing and behave possessed, like has happened many times before already in TNG, and will happen again in the future in TNG. With data, no less. So all of these instances, you know, that would be such a typical Star Trek thing to do, but instead we see data. And so that's the mystery. Why is he obscuring this? Why is he defending this? Is the problem with everyone else? I mean, that's been a thing too in Star Trek, so... Huh. And then it builds on itself, right? Anyways, uh, forgive me for defending it. It's just I personally think the mystery, the real mystery, works really well in this episode. Uh... There's also, <laughs> there's also a really nice, tiny little tidbit. I know I point out little tidbits all the time. Please forgive me. Where Data is just getting back in the probe thing, and he says, maybe it was, it was distorted by the, the, the wormhole or whatever. And then he just goes back to business, and then Riker says, wait a minute. And Brent Spiner gives just the tiniest physical reaction. Just his eyes go, Ugh. just really quick. I'm not even doing it. It's just, Ugh. And you could just see there's this, oh, okay, now, now i gotta, now I got to deal with this. It's, it's even more obvious on second viewing, especially when you look at his reaction at the very end where Picard decides to accept the explanation and his reaction is far more pleased. It's like, okay, we did it this time. Whew! One of the things I also like about this episode overall is how hard it is to fake evidence. Now, this is actually true in real life. One of the interesting things about uh, deductive science, I know that's, that's actually a very broad term, in real life is that we actually have the ability in real life to deduce the reality of a lot of things. We have access to an overwhelming amount of information, and Hollywood in general tends to ignore all that stuff when it comes to constructing mysteries, usually in the legal sense, like a murder mystery or whatever. And it's like, no, there's like 15 ways they could figure this out in real life. 
We'll accept that because of, you know, we're here to be entertained and all that. But what I like about this episode is this kind of makes that part of the strength. That it is that hard to fake it, to really make this work. In fact, truth be told, there's actually a layer that they never address here, which should kind of, you know, help to emphasize the nature of how hard this is to fake. Because they're going to get out of this, go back, and it's going to have been two plus days or three plus days or whatever since they last got in contact. And their clocks will literally offset from the rest of the galaxies because they presume it's only been 30 seconds since the original time through, which was days ago at this point. Ergo... They're going to have that problem. Now, that can be explained. Oh, clearly the wormhole displaced us in time as well as space, and that'll be the end of that. But you get my point, right? And I enjoy how that makes it so that there's all these little tidbits, because that's another strength of the episode. Really, almost every individual thing that, that happens, up to a point, and the episode is all explainable. But then you start to look at them as an aggregate. It's kind of a reverse brushstrokes theory thing. Because the episode is effectively painting with brushstrokes what actually happened. Except that's not the intent, per se, right? It's just, well, here's this, and then the episode moves on. And then, well, here's this, and the episode moves on. Well, here's this, and the episode moves on. And the more it just kind of does this, and it speeds up, too. It ramps up the rate of, of dropping little info until it gets to the point where it's like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> what the heck is going on here? You know, I'm looking at my notes here. I mentioned one other thing here in my notes that I want to mention. There's a bit where they have effectively decided, okay, Data is obviously someone that we're having an issue with. And so there's this scene where Picard confronts Data in his ready room and orders Data to go down for a robotic equivalent of a physical with Geordi. In the background in that scene is a security officer. She's even referenced. Picard gives her an order in the middle of that. I love that because, again, and this is, a lot of this is on the strength of Les Landau because obviously this was built into the script, but he makes it so that she's barely visible back there. But that's the point. They have gotten to the point now where they are sufficiently suspicious of Data to have a security presence right there just in case who knows what happens because they don't know if this is Data or if he's being controlled or whatever. And that's smart, which I like, and it's subtle, which I like. There's a nice bit where Troy uh, is, basically freaks out. But, you know, she gets the dizziness because the Paxons are, are scanning her, and then the Paxons peek through her to see how their plan is going. Now, this was actually part of the flaw. What I find funny is later they insist that the problem was with, with the Picard and crew, that the plan was flawed. No one ever mentions that the Paxons themselves also helped screw this up, <laughs> right? Because the Paxons were peeking through Troy to, to keep tabs on the whole situation. I'll talk more about the Paxons in a second. But anyways, as, as usual, Sirtis isn't given much to do, but she does a good job with it. You know, the idea of there was someone else peeking through there, it wasn't me. Very well stated. Then, well... Then there's a really great scene where Worf goes to get his wrist looked at because his wrist has been broken. Now, what I love about this scene is this is basically a classic example of a red herring because by this point, we already have about a dozen or so little points of data, no pun intended, that all indicate that data yeah, is the one who is behind all of this. And then he mentions that data is one of the only people who could do this to his wrist. As we learn, he wasn't. It was actually the Troy possessed, Troy possessed by the Paxons that ended up doing that. 
But I mention that because my favorite tidbit, and I honestly really want to know how many of you caught this. So there's the teaser, you know, cut to black, everyone's passed out, we, we watch the credits roll. Comes back, Data's there working, and everyone just kind of slowly gets to their feet. And this is after the second loop through now at this point, right? Or, or excuse me, this is in the second loop, I'm saying this wrong. This is after the first loop through. So everyone's getting up after the first attempt. And in the background, Worf is there, and he, look, he turns around like this, and then he kind of... And then Dorn, I love this, Dorn just kind of looks confused, and he pulls up his wrist like, that's weird, and he tries to flex, you know, flex his hand a little bit, and pulls it up there, and there's several seconds where that shot stays there. How many of you have ever noticed that? And I'm not saying that to brag or anything, because I'll be completely honest, I didn't notice that until this viewing, until this time going through this, and I was just like, dude! Uh, th this is the advantage of, of front-loaded storytelling in a nutshell. Because you can tell Michael Dorn in the background to do this in the background because you know what's happened and know what's going to happen. You can't do that with back-loaded. You can only adapt to what's been done. You can't leave breadcrumbs or trails or hints at where things are coming. You can't do proper foreshadowing. You can only look at what's been done and basically try to extrapolate on what was there. You know, adaptive storytelling. So I, I just wanted to praise that moment because it's a brilliant moment. So Data, <laughs> there's this great scene where Picard finally basically just confronts Data with his face. It's like, all right, look. I was trying to think of a name for this and I couldn't think of it. There's a type of secret where you can't say why you're keeping it a secret because doing so will ruin the secret. You know, the purpose in keeping it secret will be ruined by revealing why you're keeping it secret. You know, I can tell you why, but then at that point I might as well just tell you what it is because I've already ruined it, right? There's got to be a term for that that I just don't know. But I bring that up because that's exactly where Data is. And you can just... Poor Data. <laughs> and again, his, this is when his wording gets really obvious and how he is very specifically stating things in a very specific method. It's like, okay, well, I can't reveal this. I have to follow orders, but I have to... Tell me, Captain! You, know, you can almost just see him trying to process his way, logic his way through a route in which he can actually accomplish all of his objectives simultaneously, and he's just consistently failing at it. And it's what, the best part of that is when he, later on, he gets the bridge, and he has effectively just dropped all pretense of anything. We have to leave now. I can't say why, but we gotta go! And he just... Drops that right on Picard's face. And of course, you did this, sir. Oh my god. Let's talk about the Paxons. Because there's two final topics I want to mention here. First is the Paxons themselves. The idea of the Paxons is actually fascinating in its own way to me. Because what we have is a race of sufficiently advanced beings who may or may not be energy beings. It's never really completely defined one way or the other. But they obviously have a, control of, a significant control over energy. But we have these people who are sufficiently xenophobic as to literally want to be segregate from the rest of the galaxy. Picard himself calls it the right to privacy, uh, which is another topic that I could talk about, but we'll move on. What I find fascinating about them is they are relatively non-hostile. What they do is a hostile act and can certainly be interpreted as such, but it could be so much worse. They could just destroy or they could kill, or annihilate, or tear apart, or, or whatever. They certainly have the capacity to do that. Instead, they decide to do this massively elaborate thing with specifically designed tech in order to make sure that everyone thinks, oh, whew, and then they just move on, rather than, you know, anything else that they could have done, which would be far more violent and horrible. Now, they are still wor 
uh, accomplished, or, God, I can't have any words today. I just got off a plane yesterday. I'm still kind of a jet lag here. Please forgive me. They still are willing to go ahead and kill. They're still willing to go ahead and destroy the ship because it's the only way. But I bring this up. This is important. Because I've heard someone argue, well, the reason they don't destroy ships is because then more people will just show up looking for them. No. No, that's not occurred to them because their automatic response to the Enterprise is, we're going to destroy you. It is Picard who has to counter with that logic, which obviously did not really occur to them. Hence, the willingness to kill has nothing to do with pragmatism or them trying to not, you know, be seen. It has everything to do with the fact that they simply don't want to kill people. I know that sounds like a weird thing, but it's important to establish some kind of uh, moral center for a species that's xenophobic. Because usually, xenophobic races are written to be evil. Just straight up evil. <laughs> Death to everything that's not us, right? I mean, Species 8472 is an excellent example of that over on Voyager. They are, or, or the Daleks over in Doctor Who, right? But here, we have the Paxons who are just... Could you leave us alone, please? I actually imagine that there's a ship's equivalent and a crew equivalent whose entire job, or jobs, because there might be a rotation, is to make sure no one shows up and bothers them. Because something about that appeals to me. And I, I just feel like there's a lot... Of course, we'll never see them again because of the whole nature of the episode, but I feel like there's a lot of potential with doing you know, the kind of culture, the kind of people that would exist that so adamantly want to not interact with others, or at least on, on the grand scale. Maybe some of them disagree. Maybe some of them... You know, maybe all of them agree universally. We got the Planet of Hats problem in Star Trek as usual. I don't know. Just interesting thoughts. I would love to know your guys' thoughts, as ever, about the Paxons. The final thought I wanted to talk about was the right to privacy thing, because what I find most interesting about that is he assumes, he's, the way he says it implies, although does not state outright, that that is just kind of an automatic guarantee of existence. That if a species says, leave us alone, never come back, that he, and by virtue Starfleet, and by virtue the Federation, will automatically say, okay, and leave, and never return. This will actually come up again in a future episode, First Contact, which I think is this season, um, where we'll talk about this in more, at more length. But I find that fascinating because that makes a degree of sense, doesn't it? Like, obviously, they're probably going to keep some kind of tabs on things, the whole intelligence thing I mentioned at the beginning of this rumination. But at the same time, you can understand why it would be, there would be a sort of inbound, inbuilt respect for the wishes of other sentient sapient beings, within limits, obviously. And I like the idea that what could have happened, although, of course, this would never happen for a species like this, but what could have happened is the Paxons could have basically petitioned the Federation. Could you set up, like, a barrier or, like, some kind of thing so just nobody ever interacts with us again? And I'm pretty sure the Federation would be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> just food for thought. Enjoyable episode. It was, good. it was good going back through this one. Hope you guys enjoyed. I'll see you next time.